0: the bob murphy show episode 113 there's a title with coming what you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show
1: the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and
0: economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. My guest today is Orrin Cass, And let me just read his official bio here, and then I'll give a little personal flair. So Oren is the executive director of American Compass, whose mission is to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. Prior to founding American Compass, Oren held roles as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, the domestic policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign, and a management consultant in Bain & Company's Boston and Delhi offices. Cass graduated from Williams College, where he spent four years as the varsity baseball team's bullpen catcher in Harvard Law School, where he was editor of the Law Review. He lives in Western Massachusetts with his wife and two children. Okay, so Oren, I knew him from his work on carbon taxation, and then more generally, the economics of climate change. And also, um, he did some great work. You folks may remember when some of the Republicans were threatening to repeal Obamacare. And uh, the pushback was how many millions of Americans that would kill over a certain time period. And Oren went in and he crunched the numbers and, and was showing that uh, actually, actually the uh, states that that didn't accept the Obamacare money, they did better on the mortality figures than the states that accepted it, right? So in terms of decomposing it, it was great stuff. Like it just just showing that actually no, that uh, that claim doesn't hold up. The carbon tax stuff, it's uh, it's a little too technical to get into here in terms of just a brief introduction. But let me just say his stuff was some of the best I had seen on documenting the problems with the arguments for a carbon tax. And then also he had testimony, I don't remember if it was to the House or the Senate, going through some of these calculations showing, oh, if we don't do something about climate change, you know, the GDP hit will be blah, blah, blah in terms of the climate damage. And he was just showing where those numbers were coming from. And and it was a pretty subtle thing that he uncovered. But once he pointed out the fallacy, you realized how crazy some of these, you know, shocking headline figures of the cost of climate change were. So I'll link to those at bobmurphyshow.com slash 113 if you're curious. So as far as what our discussion today is about, though, many of you may have known that Oren is now infamous in right-wing economic circles because he went from being one of our good guys to then now he's challenging standard free market libertarianism. And so uh, that's the focus of our conversation. But of course, I let him say it in his own words. And I, the point here is not to debate someone. Just folks may remember I had Warren Mosler on the point wasn't to debate him. I just wanted to let him in his own words explain and give some pushback just for him to clarify what the position was and what the alleged problems with the free market position was. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Oren Cass. Well, Oren, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Oh, thank you for having me. So I gave a little bit already in the pre-recorded uh, introduction of what your background is, but maybe just for our listeners to hear it from your own mouth. Can you explain, how did you end up becoming at the, uh, a scholar at the Manhattan Institute? And you know, what is that organization? And then like, is that, was that something you, you thought when you were a little kid, you're like, you know what, I want to be a real policy wonk when I grow up. How did that happen?
1: <laughs> uh I'm not fairly early on. I was I was a very enthusiastic policy debater in high school. So I guess for a a long time I've been interested in this world. Um my background is I actually uh started out working in management consulting at Bain and Company uh after college, but always knew this stuff was more my interest and so mm. I went off to law school when all of my colleagues were going off to business
0: school. Sure. Can uh, I ask you what did what yep. did you major in college or is that
1: Uh, Yeah, political economy. I I was at Williams Mm -hmm. College, which is one of the only places that actually has that as a major, which I think partly just sort of sounds quirky and cool. But now that I'm in this world, I realize I I think pretty substantively affects how I approach questions and Mm -hmm. and how it might be different in some cases from someone who comes from a a typical political science or economics track.
0: Sure.
1: So anyway, I went off Went off to law school and then uh, from there got very involved in uh, Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign uh, and served as his domestic policy director, which is <laughs> – it, it, it's funny. Domestic policy – everyone knows what the foreign policy director does and everyone knows hmm. what the economic policy director does. And domestic policy is sort of everything else.
0: Oh, okay. I didn't realize there was a separate econ. I thought what I thought domestic included economics. Okay, so I didn't. Re- yeah. So can you explain then that distinction? Well, <laughs> yeah, first of all, can it, you tell it, us how did you how did you get that role? Because you sound like you must have been pretty young.
1: Uh, I was. I mean, I think you know a funny thing about political campaigns generally is you know wh- whoever's there the longest certainly gets to <laughs> get gets to move up, and if they show a, a talent for it and, and do a good job. So I actually started. Very early on, even even before he'd announced uh, his the formal candidacy as as one of the members of the small policy shop, and uh, and we, we sort of grew from there. And typically, I I don't know that everyone does this, but certainly the the way we approached it was mapping issues fairly closely to the way a White House would ultimately map them, which is there tends to be kind of the the National Security Council, the National Economic Council, and the mm-hmm. Domestic Policy Council. And so economic policy typically is kind of more tax, budget, financial regulation kind of issues, foreign policy obviously is foreign policy, and then domestic policy tends to sort of be everything else um, okay. from healthcare to energy and environment to education. And, and we actually treated trade in my portfolio because it was part of kind of the the jobs plan we were thinking about. Uh, and, and so I ended up getting to do a lot of work on on China-related issues, in particular, at a time when not a lot of people were thinking about it, which was which was a fantastic experience. So you you
0: were worried about China before it was cool.
1: <laughs> I guess I mean, and and that came straight from well that Governor Romney, who you know looked at at the kind of standard free trade orthodoxy and said you know I yes generally yes, so obviously he's a very enthusiastic free trader, but. But said, "But what are we going to do about China?" And mm. and the answer was, "Well, you, you don't do anything about China. You know, there's 2011. You, you China does what they want, and and free trade is good. And mm. I think drawing on on his his business background in particular, he said, No, that's not <laughs> that's not right. That's not how this is working at all.' Go
0: right. So can I? Add, and I know we're anticipating here when we're going to talk about your uh, defection or whatever we want to call it. Um, but. Is that partly what attracted you to Romney? That you like, you know, he was sharp and everything, the business person, but also he wasn't, you know, some leftist socialist. He understood the value of markets, but also you thought he, you know, per- perceived there were weaknesses in the the orthodoxy.
1: I think that's all very truest description of him. I, I think what you know what what attracted to me him, what attracted me to him initially was. Just his his very deep and thoughtful focus on on actually wanting to understand and think through issues, and and I think you see that now in the Senate as well. You know, he obviously has a, a core set of principles and and is committed to a lot of, of of the things that make someone a conservative in the first place, and and the importance and value of of a market economy. But almost never can can you go to him and say. Well all right here's what someone is supposed to say about this. He always wants to actually understand the issue, think it through and and come to to the right conclusion for himself. And so, you know, I think that makes him certainly a, an important person for us to have in in public service and and also a really
0: exciting person to mm-hmm. work for. Sure. Can I ask I don't know if this is weird but just like did they, were they advertising that like, we need a domestic policy advisor and you and 20 other people sending your resume and they picked you or how does that how did that actually work
1: <laughs> no I I had actually worked for his 2008 campaign very briefly as as an intern in the policy shop and so I knew a lot of the folks in the on the policy team uh, and when they were then first staffing up the 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 what would become the 2012 campaign was asked if I wanted to come be involved. And so, you know, especially very early on when you have a, a small policy shop for a nascent campaign, it's very much kind of a a group of people who believe in the candidate and, and want to help build the campaign. And, and it's almost like a startup. Every, everyone kind of mm. takes on everything and you go from there. And, you know, I always say, you know, presidential campaigns are sort of, in a sense, the most stunning startups in the world, I mean, you go from zero to a, a billion-dollar enterprise in a matter of months, knowing that you're going to then vanish into thin air a, a few months after that. So it's a, it's it's a really unique and, uh, and 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 exciting environment, and and also one that that certainly wears you out quickly.
0: Yeah, that that's an interesting way to put it. Never thought of that. Um, Okay, so then, how did you end up at the Manhattan Institute? Well, first of all, can you explain what the Manhattan Institute is? I think a lot of people have heard of it, but they don't know exactly. Like everyone knows, oh yeah, what the Heritage Foundation does or American Enterprise, but what what is the Manhattan Institute known for?
1: Yeah, sure. So Manhattan is a, Institute is a think tank like AEI or Heritage. Um, it's as the name suggests, it's based up in New York, not in DC, um, which I think gives it some really unique. Characteristics and I would say features, um, it, it tends to be a little bit less focused on the, you know, Beltway issue of the moment mm-hmm. uh, and, and is a lot more, um, well, I shouldn't say a lot more. They're playing very thoughtful people at AI and Heritage, but is particularly focused on kind of being thoughtful about longer term social trends, thinking about state and local issues as well as national ones. Uh, it publishes City Journal, which I think is a really unique and and outstanding quarterly um, that again can kind of take a step back and and cover more of the kind of big picture issues in in public policy and and in the nation. Uh, and then I you know particularly I think well known for you know again being based in New York was was very involved in helping uh, Mayor Giuliani when he was turning the city around. Um, doing what's called the kind of idea of broken windows policing and really focusing on public order as as the starting point to bringing down crime and improving quality of life uh, and so you know it's it is the same type of organization as as an AEI or a Heritage but I think really excels in in some of those areas and has a unique voice.
0: Okay, so it, it's it's not merely that it's not a beltway organization, but the but the fact that it's the Manhattan Institute means they were specifically. Writing on policies for New York City,
1: so some. so there there's a group of folks that purely focuses on state and local policies um and and some of whom, again, focus specifically on New York City, um you know, more more able to be constructive when you have a Giuliani or a Bloomberg in office than than when you have a de blasio. sure. um, mm-hmm. but it but so it runs the range all the way from at one end, you know, focusing on New York City budget or pension or, or policing issues to, at the other end, doing the same kind of national healthcare reform, education reform, tax and budget issues that, that you would see at an AEI or
0: Heritage. Okay. So things like, um, and again, I don't, I just vaguely know of these, like, like stop and frisk. Is that something that was independently done or is that something like that you guys had a, or the Manhattan Institute scholars had a white paper on originally? That that's a
1: great question. I have to admit I don't know the answer because among other things I was over at the national policy side of it. Okay, I got you. Okay. Mm. But certainly the the broader concept which is termed broken windows policing mm-hmm. um and the idea of kind of really focusing on controlling and and restricting even very basic low-level Crime and disorder mm. as as a precursor to what then ultimately leads to the much much larger crime issues is saying that that there were books and papers and so forth sure. published from Manhattan Institute. Yeah,
0: let me ask you to so because I think a lot of my listeners, being economics fans, are going to think you're referring to Paul Krugman's economics when you say broken windows. <laughs> so <laughs> can you clarify what it, what does that mean in the context of strategies for uh, you know police law enforcement? The, the broken windows idea. What is that?
1: Yeah, so so broken windows is um, it, it came out of work done by by James Q Wilson and and George Kelling, um mm-hmm. back in the nineteen eighties, and and the idea was essentially that if you have a community that looks disordered, that looks like a place where there's likely to have a lot of crime, um, you actually end up having more crime. And and that then leads to more violent crime and and a shutting down of kind of civil society and and public safety in those places. And so when you're when you're facing a situation where you have high levels of crime, rather than just trying to catch and prosecute you know the violent felons after the felonies occur, um, one of the most important things you can do is actually try to restore that basic sense of order and go back and you know crack down on vandalism, clean up the street corners, establish that sense of public safety and that environment of a commitment to public order. Um, And and when you do those things, you actually then get the reduction in violent crime much more effectively than just trying to catch each violent criminal
0: after it happens. Yes. If you don't mind, or let me just paraphrase and tell me if this is because I think I read someone who was trying to explain it. It might have even been James Q. Wilson himself being like, okay, you're running a police force and you're in this big city, and there's you know horrible things going, like homicides and stuff. And so one might be tempted to say, okay, let's use our limited resources just to enforce the really important laws, like you know rape and bank robberies and murders. And the other stuff, we just we just got to just accept that, yeah, people are going to be graffitiing on the on the subways and blah blah. blah. But then this new theory says, no, no, I actually, devote some resources to even like ticketing jaywalkers even though in the grand scheme, someone jaywalking in New York City, who cares? Because again, like you, you want the community not to think that there's just anarchy in the bad sense. And that if you do provide that sense of order and you know, there's not graffiti all over, it doesn't look like a bad neighborhood. More people are going out and shopping and whatever. And just if there's more eyes on the street, there won't be as many murders just for the simple fact that people feel comfortable walking up and down the street and there's more witnesses. Is that part of what what is involved?
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and and I mean, as I'm sure your listeners can tell, <laughs> I, I'm not an expert on on this stuff. Um, if you know, if if folks want to know more about it, I would say start with the the kind of seminal article, which was an essay that that Kelly and Wilson wrote in the Atlantic back in 1982. Um, that was mm-hmm. called "Broken Windows," and it it really kind of lays out the theory and, and the sociology of it, and and I think it's been enormously influential and. Uh, and, and important in 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 the reduction of crime in our right. cities, which has been an incredible story of of the last few decades.
0: Okay, incidentally, Warren. So I, if, if we had time, you know, we could devote an hour to this because there's lots of things I think in that case there. But that's since that's not your area, that's not fair. I want to argue with you on the free trade stuff. So that's why I'm gonna I'm telling the listeners I'm not I'm just not gonna push this one. Um. So then, so you now you've recently come out forming American Compass. Can you explain, you know, what that is, and and what you hope to achieve with it?
1: Yeah, sure. So, American Compass is is a new organization. We just announced its formation uh, a few weeks ago, and and will launch formally in the beginning of May. Uh, and our mission is to to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. And the idea that we're really focused on is that the, you know, the way that we think about economic policy, um, especially in the right of center, but but to a large extent on the left of center as well, has, I think, fallen into a set of orthodoxies that focuses much too heavily on uh, economic growth for its own sake. The idea that kind of whatever produces the most efficient outcome and therefore, the greatest amount of stuff at the lowest price is ultimately going to be the best for society and has really lost sight of the importance of um, our kind of bedrock social institutions, things like the health of the family and the community and society, things like the the robustness of investment in domestic industry uh, within the economy. Uh, and, and I think we're paying a price for it. And so, you know, the funny thing is that if, if you go back and look at at, at American history, there there was always, and, and especially for, for conservatives, always a much greater emphasis on all, all these other things. It's it's only very recently that I think we've become much too dependent and on and, and obsessed with just what are the economic metrics showing us each quarter. And and so we want to kind of like we say, re- restore that economic consensus that thinks about these questions more broadly and, and deeply so that I think it will open up the scope for a lot more policymaking and a lot more more directions for policymaking that could address some of the challenges we have.
0: OK, so can you just elaborate a little on like your understanding of U.S., at least national politics in terms of so are you let me make a statement. You tell me if it's right to describe your views that. The the GOP didn't, you know, historically, they were, what they did stand for was, yes, of course, limited government and, you know, free enterprise and anti-communism and stuff. But beyond that, also like a sense of patriotism and, you know, the importance of the American worker and the strong manufacturing base that in the 50s and 60s, that's kind of what America stood for. And then somehow that got changed to a more like free market centered Orthodoxy, where like the only you know the decisive issue on any policy matter, at least putting aside you know military issues, would be you know what, what's what's good to promote you know it just you know there was go ask some libertarian economist what what do you think on this and that's that's decisive and you think that was a change somehow in terms of at least what the orthodox position was of the of the GOP? Am I close that you think something like that happened?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think the the one. Part of that that I would tweak is you know it's not just the 1950s and 60s it's also the 1850s and 60s and the mm. 1790s I mean the the tradition of of American economic policy and and the sort of approach that made us the world's leading economy and and brought these unprecedented levels of of prosperity was one that focused heavily on kind of protecting and promoting domestic industry making public investments um, and and recognizing while the free market is absolutely the right mechanism for organizing an economy, um, and you know I, I always have to emphasize I, I'm extremely pro market. I, I think markets are certainly better than any alternative we have for organizing an economy, but that there are some things that markets don't do, and that that there's nothing in economic theory going all the way to back Adam Smith that says you know individual actors pursuing profit in the market are going to allocate investment in a way that that ensures the health of the national economy over time. And so there has to be a a public role as well for making sure that those things happen. And what I think happened in U.S. politics is, like you said, kind of after the 50s and 60s, you have, for the right of center, the, the emergence of what's called fusionism, which was this coalition, essentially, of groups Rightly dedicated to defeating communism. And you had mm-hmm. economic libertarians, you had social conservatives, you had foreign policy hawks. and uh, and and they came together to form what we think of as kind of the Republican platform, which is very conservative socially, but economically, we we call it conservative because conservative is the word we use for the right of center but is is really quite libertarian and and really, I would say quite unconcerned with with the actual things that that conservatives would focus on in in an economic context. and And so, I can give you some examples of that. sure. yeah, but but the the effect is is in a sense that what what we call conservative economic policy or or right of center, I think is better understood of as libertarian. And so I, I think what conservatives have lost a voice in the discussion and could potentially bring back is, for instance, recognizing that you know while while agglomeration and and kind of concentration of economic activity in particular places may be extremely efficient and produce high levels of growth, um, there's also an incredible amount of value in economic diffusion and and making sure that investment and opportunity is is widespread across the country. Um, that, you know, while you want to have people moving to opportunity and pursuing opportunity, you also want to have an economy that that makes sure that local communities remain healthy and, and people have the option of of staying where they are, because that, that has always been and, and I think I can say will always be what what most people want to do and, and in fact do. You know, I think an issue like inequality is something where from a libertarian perspective, we've kind of dug ourselves into a right-of-center corner of saying, well, inequality just doesn't matter. As long as you have more stuff than you had last year or 10 years ago or 50 years ago, you should be happy. And there is a sense in which that's true, and it's important to recognize that people do have more stuff than they had a year ago or 10 years ago or 50 years ago, mm-hmm. that there have been those improvements in material living standards. But I think conservatives would rightly also say we also have to attend to the social fabric and we have to recognize that there are ways in which inequality does matter, that it does affect people's quality of life, that it does affect their opportunity. And so we we have to be comfortable talking about that as well. Um, and, and so I could go on and on. I don't want to bore you with too many examples, but the kinds of underlying intuitions and commitments that lead people to be conservative and that make conservatism such an important component of public policy, I think has really been absent from how we talk about economics. And I think our economic policy has has suffered as a result.
0: Okay, great. Let me, um, okay, so I know I want to clarify one thing just because one of the big sort of like guffaw moments I saw when people that I know, like, like, you know, let's call them professional libertarians. Read about you know your your interview talking about the American Compass was I don't remember the exact quote, but some people took you to be saying, "Oh yeah, the modern Republican Party has just been this bastion of libertarian orthodoxy for since Reagan," and they're ha ha ha. Are you kidding me? We you know we can't stand how awful and status the Republicans are in office. So can you just clarify? To what extent do you mean or in what sense is the GOP sort of enthralled to libertarian orthodoxy?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of things I would clarify there. One is, you know, talking about the GOP and talking about the right of center aren't exactly the same thing. I mean, a okay. political mm-hmm. party has a range of competing substantive and political issues that are, that affect what is in its agenda And so while I think the kind of fusionism that I've described describes the kind of dynamic underlying how the Republican Party has behaved, I I don't think you can say, oh, well, you know, the set of policies that have ultimately been proposed or passed in Congress are X, therefore, you know, that's what the orthodoxy of the right of center must be. And it's actually kind of funny because of course in general one of the things libertarians are are most focused on is is public choice theory and mm-hmm. the idea that the, the set of ideas you have after they after they go through the wash of the political process doesn't necessarily lead to the exact set of policies you'd want um and and, and so i would encourage libertarians to turn that analysis on on themselves to a certain extent and recognize that just because you have a, a sort of particular intellectual orientation and set of ideas that are being advanced, obviously that doesn't mean it translates into a particular set of policies passed by Congress. And and so what I think is is a very fair characterization. And 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 what I'm focused on is that when you look at the debates that occur within the right of center and the the set of positions that are kind of expected and the set of defaults from which you are supposed to proceed in your analysis those i think do skew very heavily in a libertarian or market fundamentalist direction and you know the fact that then at the end of the day there's a farm bill that has a lot of pork in it doesn't say anything about the kind of nature of debates that are are playing out and the nature of the assumptions that we make when we have these debates so my perception, and, and it's a hard thing to kind of document or prove, though, again, happy to kind of run through examples, is that that kind of orthodoxy is quite strong on the right of center, that it it does affect, and, and from my perspective, distort how we think about a lot of these issues um, and, and the sets of policies we're willing to, to discuss in response, and that we should want to take a different approach.
0: Okay, great. L- let me pose a different um, dichotomy here. And then you tell me how, how you feel about this. So, because I don't think that what I'm about to say describes you necessarily, but I wonder if if I, this, so let me just say it. I know a bunch of libertarian, like self-described libertarians who are also socially conservative, like particularly if they're Christian. And so they might say something like, oh, I agree that the modern libertarian movement and like all of the free market oriented think tanks and stuff, all they focus on is economic issues. And they're generally right on that stuff insofar as they go, but they're ignoring, you know, transgender agenda. And, you know, look at at this crazy stuff going on. In other words, like the social things that are happening, the collapse of the family and abortions is way more important to me as a Christian libertarian than tariff rates but yeah technically yes trump's an idiot on protectionism blah 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 but you know the important thing is the social stuff and that's why you know in this election that's where i'm focused so i know people that have that sort of so it's not that they think the the free market policy analysis is wrong it's just they think there are some other things that are more urgently needed right now and we're looking at what the government's doing to us kind of thing are you sympathetic to that or you think that that also is just too forgiving of the damage of like pure free market orthodoxy, and even narrowly economic issues. Well, I, uh,
1: first of all, I think it's a mistake to define conservatism or or social conservatism in terms of kind of specific flashpoint issues that we've now come to think of as kind of social issues. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think you mentioned transgenderism and and abortion and so forth. Um, you know. Social conservatism or, or conservatism, ultimately, I, I think is about a much more fundamental orientation and, and set of issues that, um, for instance, takes very seriously the importance of traditional institutions and the importance of the role that, you know, stable families and healthy communities play in outcomes for society, which I would contrast with a more progressive view which regards kind of individuals as to a large extent free actors mm-hmm. who we just need to support somehow with government.
0: And so And that if, children need it takes a village to raise the child, kind of thing.
1: Well, so interesting. Are you saying that as something that you think progressives think or saying that you think
0: conservatives think? I meant it as something progressives think because of Hillary Clinton's book, but what, what are you are you saying you, you agree that there's a sense coming from a conservative approach?
1: Well, the idea that it takes a village to raise a child, I would argue, is actually a, a an extremely conservative point of view. If you take the village to mean the local community and civil society and extended family, in other words, an actual village. If if you take it to mean it is therefore the role of national government, mm-hmm. um then i think you go off in in a much more progressive direction but the idea that kind of local social conditions are incredibly important to um the formation of character and and competence and and outlook for young people i, I think that that must be true and you know again another way that that i think the the basic conservative and and progressive outlooks would vary as i think you know conservatives would be much more likely to recognize that 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 is a crucial challenge that people are not kind of by default you know highly effective and competent mature and responsible members of society that you need all of these institutions to form them mm-hmm. um and and so if if those things you know so when i associate those things with with what i would say are are kind of the the kinds of intuitions and principles that that we associate with conservatism and that lead someone ultimately to to be conservative those those aren't necessarily economic or social they 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 don't you know cultural they don't break down along those lines those i think are intuitions that you can then apply to a question in whatever spirit is in. And and I think the strange thing that we've done is we've we've taken those intuitions and said okay we're going to apply those to social questions but not to economic questions. And so, you know, to your to your friends who say, well, I'm, you know, I'm economically very libertarian but also socially very conservative, I I would push them on that and say, well, Okay, let's talk about what we actually mean by each of those terms. If if we mean we're actually committed to the the set of things I just described, but we're also economically libertarian, what I would suspect they mean, and and now I'm obviously just putting words in the mouths of people I've never even met. I mean, <laughs> though though certainly I've met people like this. Right. Sure. Um. What what it seems to me is is the thinking there is, yes, you know I have these conservative commitments, but. I also like markets, and I and I am suspicious of the effectiveness of government, and I certainly don't like socialism. And I think that's all right. I, I too, like markets and am skeptical of the effectiveness of government and don't like socialism. But what that leads us to when we're, we're talking about economic policy can't then just be this knee-jerk reaction that... Therefore, the smallest government is always best, and the freest market will always produce the best outcomes. Because because that doesn't actually follow. the The level at which I think we have to do the analysis is to say, okay, what are the ends that we actually want to achieve, and what are the means that we think can get us to those ends? Because if if you're if you are conservative, and here's where I would distinguish conservative from libertarian, and 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 ask your friend which camp they are in it seems to me that that for the the genuine libertarian the free market is the end unto itself that that the freest market is the objective regardless of what outcomes then flow from it whereas the conservative it seems to me thinks the the market is is an extraordinarily powerful means and and the right means to use in an awful lot of cases but but the end is not the freest market for its own sake it's it's this society that has these stable and effective institutions that are that are forming people and and raising the next generation to be successful as well and if we agree that that's the end then we then we can go back and ask okay where does the free market facilitate that and and where might it not whereas i think the libertarian says well no my answer is just the free market because that's the goal and And so, I don't know, you as a libertarian, I think in particular, I, I would love to to hear your reaction to that. but but that's where I see the divide to a large extent,
0: ok. And I certainly agree there are plenty, especially if we get into like the d c white paper, you know, wonkish things, that there are plenty of self-described libertarians who would fit what you just said. However, there's, I think, so my answer to you, Orin, is to say, I get what you're saying there, but I think there is a different type of libertarian, like the ones that I associate with, and I would say myself, it's not that we support the free market because we like the consequences it will yield, and it's a pragmatic thing. It's more, and we don't value the free market for its own sake. It's rather we value liberty, and so, like, for example, if some people invest in a factory and then they decide they want to move the factory to India... Like it's, if the government's going to not let them do that, I'm viewing that as the government's interfering with their private property. And just like that's, so I also can give economic arguments as to why outsourcing under certain conditions, blah, 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 actually probably isn't as bad as people think. And, but it's not that I'm saying, oh, GDP will be higher. It's more, does the government, you know, have the right to do that? And I don't see how it does.
1: Right. So how do you feel about drug reimportation?
0: Drug re um, Well, I don't know if we want to get too far afield. I I have strong. No,
1: no, I think it's very. Yeah, it's not far afield at all because you you were just giving this example of how we should let somebody um, move their factory to China, which, by the way, I agree with. I don't think we should have a law saying you can't do that. Mm -hmm. But the idea that the the principle is liberty and everything else must flow from that, I do think is worth interrogating a little bit. So, like, well, Church, the, the reason can I reimport a drug? Can I violate patents with impunity? Well, I mean, the, how how far does the liberty the,
0: principle the, extend? That, well, that's what I was going to say. Is because I actually don't. I'm very skeptical of what's called intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that I think that's almost an abuse of, of language. Like that to say I, I I can't really own an idea the same way I can own a car. So that that's the only reason I'm saying we might not want to argue on that one. Just because I think you and, we'd end up arguing about IP, perhaps. Um, so, I mean, is there a different example, like you can think of where, like, in terms of a tangible property right that you think it's obvious, like blind adherence to supporting that would conflict with like support for the family or something?
1: Oh, no, I'm all for supporting property rights, the, mm-hmm. but, but in your typical economic analysis, that doesn't get very far. I mean, are you in favor of, of taxing people to provide public education?
0: No. Because I view taxes as interfering with people's property rights, so that, that's what I'm saying. Like, so, but so you just don't think we should have public education? No.
1: <laughs> okay. So, yeah. so, so this is a so this is a great example that I think kind of helps then test people who say, "Well, I'm socially conservative but economically libertarian." Mm-hmm. If if your view is that we should not that that the principle of liberty is so sacrosanct that we as a political community should not come together and agree to raise taxes to provide public education for the children of our communities. Mm -hmm. And and again, we're, we're not discussing efficacy here. So I think under your argument, we can even stipulate the public education system works well and benefits kids, and we have better outcomes as a society when we do it. But you would still say we should not
0: do it because it tramples on liberty. Okay. Is so, that is that right? Um, all right. So let me. So for one thing, I absolutely do not stipulate that government-run schools are, uh, you know, a feather in our cap.
1: Oh no, no, no. Well, that's yeah. why I said stipulate. Yeah. I'm okay. Not saying, I'm, I'm not saying you agree that they are good, but I'm saying right. that uh, under the the liberty-based argument you're making, you're saying we even sh- if, it, we, if it we, should, out. we should yeah. be able to stipulate, yeah, yeah. that okay. they are good and they deliver better outcomes for kids. But that even in that context, you would still say we should not do it because it violates
0: Yeah. And, And here's why. Because when you say we're coming together as a community to support educating, you know, children who can't afford it, if everybody really were on board with that, you could do it privately, you know, through private scholarships or whatever, you know what I'm saying? So really the only time you're, and I would support that in a world with no property taxes to support quote, public schools, I would certainly be willing to give some of my money, you know, to make sure everybody's literate. So the only real scenario where I think your proposal and mine differ is where if some people don't want to contribute to your plan, you would force them to. Right. And, so, and so I would view so, that as, yeah, technically. And, and yes, if I don't think that outcome would lead to worse education, but if it did, yes, I would rather, in my view, you can't take somebody's money against their will, even if you're going to do something good with it, like teach kids how to read.
1: Right. Okay. So, great. So, uh, uh, this is your podcast, but if you'll permit me to go one more step. Oh, no, go ahead. Totally. Um, we happen to be in the middle of a massive public health crisis in this country and around the world. Mm-hmm. And so, I wonder if you support the collecting of taxes to uh, provide a public health agency that does things like um, try to prevent the spread of pandemics,
0: no, no, well, let me mention, so the quick, the quick answer is no, but I realize given the system we have right now and how, in my view, the government, like the CDC, for example, just to give you a quick idea what I mean, Warren, so I'm not just speaking in generalities, it's my understanding that the CDC and FDA had rules in place that were only recently relaxed that actually prevented hospitals and labs from testing for coronavirus. Like you had to use the CDC's test and in the beginning, the test kit had something wrong with it and blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't merely that the government wasn't actively helping; it was in the way, and so I. But but so you think we would be more effective in
1: responding to pandemics if we simply had no government role in public health?
0: Y- yes, because just yes, if, if yeah. Okay.
1: So so I think so I think these are exactly the kinds of of issues. I mean the the and and for for folks who who view those things that way, I think that's you know, I, obviously, I think it's completely wrong. I think right. it's an entirely kind of fair and consistent view of the world. I think it's almost impossible to reconcile with a genuine conservatism um, that that views the, the 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 common good and the priority for society being in the 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 support and flourishing of these institutions like families and communities, and so. You know, in a sense, I would argue what what you're describing you know and, and it's always a question where so where then do libertarians kind of fall on the political spectrum because obviously it's not traditional progressivism which a lot of times calls for for more government mm-hmm. and and government to solve all of these things but but in a in a sense it it is it is extremely radical and oh and, sure and, and yeah. therefore and and so that's why I say, you know, and, and we can debate how much of an orthodoxy it is, but to the, to the extent that, that those kinds of impulses are playing a role in shaping how the right of center approaches public policy, it seems to me very counterproductive to the effort to advance a conservative
0: vision of public policy. Okay, sure. Yeah. And that that's fair. Um, I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. Uh, so how do you fit like, the Trump phenomenon into your, like, is that partly what made you decide to form American compass or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just curious as to how the Trump phenomenon affected what you think is going with the right of center policy analysis. And what did that have anything to do with, with your decision?
1: Well, so it didn't have anything to do with the kind of substantive approach on these issues. I mean, as I said, I was working on the trade issue, you know, all the way back with governor Romney in 2012 I wrote a cover story for for National Review in 2014 called "Fight the Dragon." Um, I wanted to call it "Keeping the Economic Peace," although I suppose mm-hmm. that that wouldn't sell as many copies. <laughs> but but uh, "Fight the Dragon," the the case for retaliating against China on trade, which mm-hmm. which at the time was not well received on the right of center. Um, but you know, in in my view, this has certainly since I've been been active in this world. This has been a real problem and something that that needed addressing. I think the the striking thing about the the Trump phenomenon first of all is I I think he exposed this rift between you know all of these issues we're talking about with kind of how do conservatives and libertarians think about markets in a context where um where markets are actually delivering the outcomes that conservatives care about conservatives and libertarians kind of think they agree and I think in in recent years, what we've seen is conservatives feeling like, well, wait a minute, these outcomes don't look so great, so we're concerned and and want to respond. And libertarians are saying, no, wait a minute, I thought we agreed <laughs> that we don't need to do that. Right. And and so I think you know I don't think Trump is necessarily a conservative or a libertarian, but I I think that's exactly kind of the the wound that he shoved his thumb into. And so I think certainly he has accelerated the heightened contradiction, so to speak, and accelerated that conflict. But then I think the really interesting thing is that, and and what was so important for American Compass is looking kind of, you know, three plus years into his presidency, four plus years into him kind of being the de facto leader of, of the GOP, there really aren't any well, I shouldn't say any. There aren't really many right of center institutions that that are actually facilitating and fostering what I think is is an incredible amount of intellectual energy contemplating these issues. and mm-hmm. and I think there was a real sense that well, if you know, if we can just put our heads down and wait until um, you know, this Trump thing is over, we can just go back to the way things were before. Mm-hmm. and and I don't think that's the right, answer. I think we should be taking this as an opportunity to have some of these debates and scrutinize some of these questions and build a right of center that's going to be stronger and more responsive to America's challenges going forward. And, you know, if, if not now, when, if, if not me, who? So um, we're we're going to go and try to
0: do that. Okay, yeah, and I totally get that. So we just got a few minutes left here, Oren. I would like to just spend the last, the rest of it on um your essay called The Comparative Disadvantage." So, so folks, if you go to BobMurphyShow.com slash one thirteen, I'll give the links to this stuff. So, Oren, you had it was at the Law and Liberty website called "Comparative Disadvantage," it ran in January of twenty twenty. So here, I, I like this because it's not just a matter of like, oh, there is different competing values. Like here, you are directly taking on the case for free trade, which a lot of economic libertarian types would have thought this is the most solid thing in our arsenal. Are you kidding me, this guy's kind of challenged free trade and comparative advantage so what what is your your quick vert, you know critique
1: well on um, you know on the question of comparative advantage i I was responding to an essay by by Samuel Gregg that kind of that that in turn was responding to some of the things we're talking about and and Greg made the argument that economies do best and and we get the best outcomes when each nation focuses on its comparative advantage. And so we should let that happen and and everyone will be best off as a result. And what I wanted to do was contrast, I think, the kind of conventional wisdom, which is that comparative advantage is just discovered with what I think is actually true, which is that comparative advantage is created. Mm -hmm. Um. And so, you know, certainly there are places and and in the Adam Smith days when you traded, you know, spices and lumber, um you did discover your comparative advantage. It was right. a function of your of your geography and climate. But but in the modern international economy, the things we are trading by and large are not things that you either just are good at or not based on on how hot it is. It turns out that comparative advantage is more a function of the kind of public policies you have in your country, the public investments you make, the things you do a lot of. So, you know, one important insight of modern trade theory is that in a lot of cases, what matters is scale, that that the way you end up with comparative advantage is by having the scale, which means instead of the idea that, well, you should do what you have a comparative advantage in – it turns out you have comparative advantage in the thing you do. Mm-hmm. and And so, if that's the case, then you have an interesting question, which is, well, does it matter what you have comparative advantage in? Because everything I said is fine, and you could say, okay, but who cares? You know, whether you end up with comparative advantage, I, I give the example, you know, maybe Australia ends up with comparative advantage in kangaroo herding and trades with other countries that have comparative advantage in technology and manufacturing. Uh, but that's just fine. And I think the reality is that that's not just fine. What you have comparative advantage in matters. And so it's a, it's a two-step argument. If, if your economy's health and long-run trajectory um, depends, in part, on what you have comparative advantage in and are doing, and who gets to do what depends on your public policies and what you invest in and pursue, then... We better have public policies that take that into account and invest and pursue in things that we want to be good at. Uh, and, and so that's sort of the, the argument. It, it doesn't reject the blackboard math of how comparative advantage works. It rejects mm-hmm. the idea that, therefore, simply staying out of the market uh, and ignoring the direction the economy goes in is going to lead to the best outcome.
0: Okay, great. And and yeah, the, and I know you in your article alluded to Paul Krugman's Nobel Prize winning work. So just for the listener, re- the idea is normally when you do the comparative advantage, like, oh, there's two countries and there's you know two different goods and blah, 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 that that's a very static analysis. Whereas in general, or as, as Krugman showed, you could have two countries that were literally identical in the beginning, but if there's economies of scale, it'd be crazy for them both to produce sneakers and television sets instead one might just focus on sneakers and mass produce those because it lowers the unit cost and the other country focuses on tvs because again maybe for whatever for technological reasons it makes sense that it's you know to make the second batch of tvs is cheaper than the first because of fixed cost of the factory so you could imagine them specializing that way even though it's not because you know the, the club like the climate's better for tv production in one area right. so th- so that's yeah so you're saying or for example so this hypothetical you know Australia and beginning its free market nirvana, and local investors say, ah, we get the highest rate of return by maximizing kangaroo meat exporting, and then we import semiconductors and jet engines that other countries specialize in. And if you were the advisor to that government, you would say, no, no. What would it be? You'd put tariffs on the incoming jet aircraft, or instead you would just do domestic, like government investment in semiconductors?
1: Well, so in general, the latter. But but let me make three points about that. One is, part of the problem is that other countries are acting strategically. So mm-hmm. the reason you might end up in that position in Australia is if China is massively subsidizing its semiconductor and jet engine industries. Mm-hmm. And if you say, well, free trade is free trade, we don't care what China does, and this is fine if all we're left with is kangaroo meat, um, that might be a problem. The, the second point is there's an even worse outcome, which we are getting in the U.S., which is you could just end up making nothing at all. You could just buy the jet engines and semiconductors on credit and send nothing back, which is called a trade deficit. And again, looks looks great if all you care about is is buying cheap stuff, but I don't think is good for the economy in the long run. In terms of what you do about it, as you said the 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 solution is not to necessarily be be what we would call protectionist and just say well we're going to try to keep foreign goods out now to the extent that foreign companies that that foreign countries are in, intentionally distorting the market i do think there's a case for for responding to that you know there's there's this funny sense in which we say well obviously a commitment to free markets means a commitment to free trade and yet if a commitment to free trade means opening up your market to to other segments that are not at all free mm-hmm. <laughs> and are wildly distorted, you're, you, you are, on behalf of free trade, incredibly distorting and reducing the freedom in your market. So it mm-hmm. turns out there can actually be tension between those things that, that I think you need to confront. But ultimately, the, the right policy response is to figure out how to make your own country a relatively more attractive place to Invest in and, and do these things, and in some cases, that answer to, is is an incredibly libertarian, free market, you know, reduced regulation, enforce rule of law. I mean, one of the biggest advantages America has in the global economy is its incredible rule of law mm-hmm. and respect for private property and, and institutions to to those ends. But one of its huge disadvantages is it it has a business environment that. Does not reward long-term investment in a lot of cases, especially in things where the benefits of that investment aren't captured by the investor.
0: Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So because in general, so it it sounds like, for example, yeah, let's just work with that kind of silly Australia case just because it's so so poignant. But presumably, like if low private investors, yes, they make the highest rate of return in the near short run on kangaroo exports. But presumably, your point is if they thought more, you know 10, 20 years down the road, it would have been better had they invested to build up their semiconductor industries or whatnot. So I'm, my question is, don't don't private invest. I mean, a, a private firm knows, oh yeah, we can invest and build a new factory. Like they can look one year ahead and realize the factory is kind of just sucking wind right now while we're building it, but down the road, we'll be glad we built this thing. and we don't need government to convince shareholders of the virtue of investing in a new factory. So what is it about thinking 10 years out that all of a sudden politicians are better than business people?
1: Well, I I don't think it's that politicians are better than business people at thinking about these things. I think the problem is, you know, ultimately to to put it in economic terms, you have a lot of externalities. Mm -hmm. And, and I think this is where, you know, whether we're talking about public education and public health or economic investment, you end up with the same problem with with the liberty argument. And you you can make the liberty argument and you can say, I don't care that we are going to get inefficient and worse outcomes because liberty is the only value. But if you want good long-term outcomes, then I think you have to recognize that there are some things that liberty and market actors are not going to deliver. Mm -hmm. And so, so as an example of that, you know, when you invest in research and development, when you invest in manufacturing capacity, it's true that that creates value and, and profitable return to you over time, um, but it also creates a lot of value and, and potential profit elsewhere in the economy that you are not going to capture. And so if all you are concerned about is your own private return, you are potentially going to make much less investment. Then is actually good for the society and the health of of the economy overall. Mm-hmm. And this is something actually that Andy Grove, who was the longtime um, chairman CEO of Intel, um, used to really emphasize, which is that when he looked at what was happening in Silicon Valley, he said, you know, most of our firms making independent profit-maximizing decisions decided, well, let's just move our manufacturing to Asia, and and each individual decision was we will stipulate entirely rational and profit maximizing mm-hmm. but but the net effect of that was to hollow out the the ecosystem in silicon valley for actually manufacturing things and one thing then develop you know that people then discovered was first of all then you reduce your demand for engineers which means you have less supply of talent into the market and you end up over time losing the capacity to innovate Even further upstream, because in a lot of cases, you find that upstream innovation is tied very closely to the manufacturing process. Sure. And so those are the kinds of things. Now, again, you can say, I don't care about those things because liberty. But if you care about those things, then you have to say, we're only going to get them if we find a way to do public policy in a way that encourages them.
0: Okay, great. Let, let me, if if you have time, let me ask you just one more, one final here question, Orin, Um, because I think it's the best way to crystallize my concerns. Is as I mentioned in the inter- introduction that the listeners heard before we started the interview, Oren, I you, I I knew of you because of your work first on carbon tax issues and then later with the Affordable Care Act, and you know in particular the the claim that if we repeal the ACA, millions of people are going to die, and how you looked at the data and showed if anything the Medicaid expansion and the states that took the Obamacare money. Actually, that's where the mortality turned around the fastest um, in, in a bad way. So uh, my final question is, other groups could say, what are you talking about, Orrin?" When you, you're worried about externalities and private investors not taking into account the effects they have on the public, climate change and health care are huge areas there. And yet, you know, this guy Murphy learned about your work because you were such an informed and critic of government efforts to help and make the community better in those two spheres. So it's the same Congress. Why can we trust them with industrial planning, but not saving us from climate change or, you know, giving people adequate health coverage? I guess I, I see what you're trying to
1: get at with the question, but, but I, I, the nexus strikes me as illogical. Okay. And, and so I'll, I'll answer the question, but let me try to kind of explain my reaction to it.
0: Yeah. Take it. me. mean, it's up to you, but yeah. yeah, go ahead.
1: Which, which is, so, we, I mean, if you take carbon taxes as a concrete example, you know, environmental problems are a great example of something that create externalities, and I would say absolutely need government regulation as a response. The, the criticisms that I leveled against carbon taxes were that the, the policy would not actually deliver any of the objectives that were claimed. And because the the nature of the climate change issue, I, I thought was being mischaracterized. And so the, the idea that we should act in response to externalities and and that public policy has a, a role to play, I absolutely agree with. The idea that a carbon tax was the right policy, I, I I don't think makes any sense. And and so when I kind of then translate that to, to the broader question of, okay, well then why do we think Congress should do anything? It's because I think these are exactly the, the debates we should have. In other words, the, the response, the, the argument against a carbon tax is not, therefore, we should ignore climate change. It's climate change is obviously an issue that's going to require a policy response. So, my gosh, let's get people who are able to kind of think about and study and debate these questions trying to figure out a, a, a responsible response. Now, unfortunately, climate change is another example where, in a lot of cases, the the impulse from, from the right of center was to say, well, just climate change isn't a problem. Be, be better that than actually try, try to grapple with what kinds of responses we might make, which I've always said was a huge mistake. Well, the, actually, the first thing I ever published was an essay for National Review saying, um, look, some of these solutions to climate change are not the right ones, but conservatives need to be out there engaged in the discussion of what to do about climate change, not trying to just say this is not an issue we should be discussing. And And so I think that goes for the economy also. and and I think when we say, well, anything government does is, is going to be bad, so government should do nothing, we we have two huge problems. One is that's not what's going to happen. You're, we, we are just going to sideline ourselves from a debate that is going to continue and be worse for the lack of the contributions we might otherwise make. And second, the kind of general public choice argument that the political process makes things messy, therefore policy is bad, I don't think is logical. And the reason it's not logical is because the status quo of policies we have in effect are also the function of the political process. So they already suffer from those problems. And the ideal – set of intellectual commitments and policies that libertarians might advance will also have to go through the messy political process. So the messy political process is just the baseline under which everything we debate is always going to exist. And it seems to me that we should then have the debates and and try to come to good answers within it rather than use it as an excuse to not have the discussion at all.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, I uh, I think you and I probably if we had infinite amount of time could discuss this for hours this is great stuff but why don't we wrap it up there so folks for links i'll link to Oren's material related to these topics at bob murphy slash 113 my guest has been Orrin cass oren thanks so much for joining us
1: oh it's my pleasure thanks for having me you've just experienced another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.